Section 50 of Essays, Book 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Chapter 50 of Democritus and Heraclitus. The judgment is a utensil proper for all subjects, and will have an awe in everything, which is the reason that in these essays I take hold of all occasions where, though it happened to be a subject I do not very well understand, I try, however, sounding it at a distance, and finding it too deep for my stature, I keep me on the shore. And this knowledge that a man can proceed no further is one effect of its virtue, yes, one of those of which it is most proud. One while in an idle and frivolous subject, I try to find out matter whereof to compose a body, and then to prop and support it. Another while I employ it in a noble subject, one that has been tossed and tumbled by a thousand hands, wherein a man can scarce possibly introduce anything of his own, the way being so beaten on every side that he must of necessity walk in the steps of another. In such a case, tis the work of the judgment to take the way that seems best, and of a thousand paths to determine that this or that is the best. I leave the choice of my arguments to fortune, and take that she first presents to me. They are all alike to me. I never design to go through any of them, for I never see all of anything, neither do they who so largely promise to show it to others. Of a hundred members and faces that everything has, I take one, one while to look it over only, another while to ripple up the skin, and sometimes to pinch it to the bones. I give a stab not so wide but as deep as I can and am for the most part tempted to take it in hand by some new light I discover in it. Did I know myself less, I might perhaps venture to handle something or other to the bottom, and to be deceived in my own inability. But sprinkling here one word and there another, patterns cut from several pieces and scattered without design and without engaging myself too far, I am not responsible for them, or obliged to click close to my subject, without varying my own liberty and pleasure, and giving up myself to doubt and uncertainty, and to my own governing method, ignorance. All motion discovers us. The very same soul of Caesar, that made itself so conspicuous in marshalling and commanding the battle of Pharsalia, is also seen as solicitous and busy in the softer affairs of love and leisure. A man makes a judgment of a horse, not only by seeing him when he is showing off his paces, but by his very walk, nay, and by seeing him stand in the stable. Amongst the functions of the soul, there are some of a lower and meaner form. He who does not see her in those inferior offices as well as in those of nobler note, never fully discovers her, and peradventure she is best shown where she moves her simpler pace. The winds of passions take most hold of her in her highest flights, and the rather by reason that she wholly applies herself to and exercises her whole virtue upon every particular subject, and never handles more than one thing at a time, and that not according to it, but according to herself. Things in respect to themselves have, peradventure, their weight, measures, and conditions, but when we once take them into us, the soul forms them as she pleases. Death is terrible to Cicero, coveted by Cato, indifferent to Socrates. Health, conscience, authority, knowledge, riches, beauty, and their contraries, all strip themselves at their entering into us, and receive a new robe, 
and of another fashion from the soul, and of what colour, brown, bright, green, dark, and of what quality, sharp, sweet, deep, or superficial, as best pleases each of them, for they are not agreed upon any common standard of forms, rules, or proceedings. Every one is a queen in her own dominions. Let us, therefore, no more excuse ourselves upon the external qualities of things. It belongs to us to give ourselves an account of them. Our good or ill has no other dependence but on ourselves. Tis there that our offerings and our vows are due, and not to fortune. She has no power over our manners. On the contrary, they draw and make her follow in their train, and cast her in their own mould. Why should I not judge of Alexander at table, ranting and drinking at the prodigious rate he sometimes used to do? Or if he played at chess, what string of his soul was not touched by this idle and childish game? I hate and avoid it, because it is not play enough, that it is too grave and serious a diversion, and I am ashamed to lay out as much thought and study upon it as would serve to much better uses. He did not more pump his brains about his glorious expedition into the Indies, nor than in another in unravelling a passage upon which depends the safety of mankind. To what a degree does this ridiculous diversion molest the soul, when all her faculties are summoned together upon this trivial account? And how fair an opportunity she herein gives every one to know and to make a right judgment of himself? I do not more thoroughly sift myself in any other posture than this. What passion are we exempted from in it? Anger, spite, malice, impatience, and a vehement desire of getting the better, in a concern wherein it were more excusable to be ambitious of being overcome. For to be eminent, to excel above the common rate in frivolous things, nowise befits a man of honour. What I say in this example may be said in all others. Every particle, every employment of man, manifests him equally with any other. Democritus and Heraclitus were two philosophers of whom the first, finding human condition ridiculous and vain, never appeared abroad but with a jeering and laughing countenance. Whereas Heraclitus, commiserating that same condition of ours, appeared always with a sorrowful look and tears in his eyes. Alter ridibat quoties alimine muveratunum protuleratque pedem flebat contrarius alter. The one always, as often as he had stepped one pace from his threshold, laughed, the other always wept. Or as Voltaire, life is a comedy to those who think, a tragedy to those who feel. I am clearly for the first humour, not because it is more pleasant to laugh than to weep, but because it expresses more contempt and condemnation than the other, and I think we can never be despised according to our full desert. Compassion and bewailing seem to imply some esteem of and value for the thing bemoaned, whereas the things we laugh at are by that expressed to be of no moment. I do not think that we are so unhappy as we are vain, or have in us so much malice as folly. We are not so full of mischief as inanity, nor so miserable as we are vile and mean, and therefore Diogenes, who passed away his time in rolling himself in his tub, and made nothing of the great Alexander, esteeming us no better than flies or bladders puffed up with wind, was a sharper and more penetrating, and consequently, in my opinion, a juster judge than Timon, surnamed the man-hater. For what a man hates, he lays to heart. This last was an enemy to all mankind, who passionately desired our ruin, and avoided our conversation as dangerous, 
proceeding from wicked and depraved natures. The other valued us so little that we could neither trouble nor infect him by our example, and left us to herd one with another, not out of fear, but from contempt of our society, concluding us as incapable of doing good as evil. Of the same strain was Statilius's answer when Brutus courted him into the conspiracy against Caesar. He was satisfied that the enterprise was just, but he did not think mankind worthy of a wise man's concern. According to the doctrine of Hegesias, who said that a wise man ought to do nothing but for himself, for as much as he only was worthy of it, and to the saying of Theodorus, that it was not reasonable a wise man should hazard himself for his country, and endanger wisdom for a company of fools. Our condition is as ridiculous as risible. End of section 50